Please note that this episode covers real-life murders, serial killers, and the terrible acts that they committed. Some people may find what we're talking about in this episode disturbing. Hey guys, welcome to Voided Transmissions. I'm your host, Jason Brazier, and I am very, very, very excited today to have John Borowski. Did I pronounce that right, John? Yes, Borowski. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) A documentary filmmaker, uh, I would say true crime historian as well. And uh, just thank you for taking the time to talk. Thank you for having me on. You know, um, it's nice to finally, you know, talk with you, uh, you know, over virtual, <laughs> you know, we've been, <laughs> been friends on Facebook for a while. So it's my pleasure. I'm happy to talk and, uh, you know, let people know what I have to say about serial killers. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, let's just kind of get started off with this. I mean, how did you really even just get into documentary filmmaking? Well, documentary filmmaking, when I was in college, I went to Columbia College in Chicago for filmmaking, and I I wanted to be, in the end, a well producer and filmmaker. So my intention originally was to film a direct uh, feature, narrative feature films, but I studied everything. I even studied, you know, editing on, at that time, it was the Avid computer editing, and I actually edited film, mm-hmm. you know, which it's very different when you're holding film, because I think, you know, they do say some of, you know, the new generation with digital, you know, their their editing might not be as sharp as, you know, the older generation. And that's because, you know, I knew the value of two frames, because when you're holding it and you physically cut it, you know the value of two frames, but you know, um, it was great experience, and and you know, uh, I studied everything from sound design to acting, everything I could take. But, um, and then it was really, I was doing a history of Chicago report, and I read about uh, Castle of H. H. Holmes in Chicago during the World's Fair. And I thought that was interesting. Then I found another book about him uh, by Harold Schechter. And that really filled his whole life. So he wasn't just a maniac. This guy had three wives. He had children. He built this building. He would do scams. He was like an evil genius, H.H. Holmes. So it's like, you know what? I'm going to be graduating college. This would be a great film to springboard me, you know, into the industry. And of course, uh, you know, I didn't have, you know, a hundred million dollar budget to do a narrative, (laughs) you know, a narrative feature film. I could still do it. I love it. I see it as a three-part series. We could talk about that another time, but so I'm like, okay, well, what could I do? I could do a documentary. And at that time, when I had graduated, I was working for the village of Bensonville, which is a suburb here in Illinois. It's a suburb of Chicago, near right near O'Hare Airport. And I was doing a lot of video work, filming, TV work for them. And, you know, I, I got even more into the documentary format. And I thought, well, I could do this H.H. Holmes film through interviews, stock footage, and reenactments, and really make it come to life because no one had ever made a film on H.H. Holmes. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity. And, you know, that really started it. That Because my background, I always loved horror films. Mm -hmm. So, of course, learning about serial killers, that was, you know, it's like reality horror in that sense. So I thought, this could be good. And then H.H. Holmes won awards and was distributed. And it's still my top seller, even though it was shot on SD video, the first digital video camera that came out. 
but it's still SD and it's still the highest seller. And that goes to show you that the story is more important than anything. You know, I always say I'd rather see a well-shot film that's emotional that's shot on VHS than something $200 million that has no heart, you know? So, and that, that's what really started me. And I'm like, okay, people like this serial killer stuff. And, you know, that was in the, uh, uh, mid two thousands. Yeah. And, you know, the serial killer thing was still a little taboo, but uh, that was a hit. So I figured, well, I'll just continue on with that. Well, that's awesome, because my first introduction and hearing about you was I came across your documentary about H.H. Holmes. And I can't remember what streaming platform it was on. I I just came across it and um, I remember watching it. I had never heard of him. And so I was just blown away. Yes. By like what you said, this guy was an evil genius. Like it was crazy that he had this horror hotel. And I think one of the craziest things, I mean, every part was crazy, but I, the one part that I found the most disturbing was the room that he would put people in and then turn gas on. Oh, yeah. I mean, this guy was truly evil. He killed men, women, and children. He had gas lines leading to rooms. So if anybody was visiting the World Fair, he would rent the rooms out to them, mm-hmm. gas them, kill them, go into their rooms, take their money and valuables, throw them down a grease chute into the basement or carry them down, and then sell their skeletons to medical schools. He was a total for-profit serial killer. It's, <laughs> it's absurd. I know. You know it's, oh, God. It's, it's, it. it's absurd when you think about it, but these things really happened. Yeah, well, it's 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 almost it's comical because it's like yes. you know he's like well you know I could do this but I might you know hey I can make money off of it I guess and it's it's just it's it's my it's mind blowing that he was I mean and back in those times it was easier to get away with that type of thing I guess too but the fact that he built this entire hotel how and, and correct me if I'm wrong if I remember correctly because after I watched your film I had I looked up stuff on him too I was like I had to know more about this guy. Um, didn't he like pay different groups? Like he, uh, certain people only built parts of it. So nobody really built the whole thing as one. Like, correct. Correct. Yeah. He would hire and fire different contractors. So no one really knew the layout of this building because once you get in it, especially the second floor, it was like a maze, a virtual Mm -hmm. labyrinth. It had all these, you'd walk into one room and there's five doors. Okay, well, where does that door lead? Some doors would lead to a brick wall, you know, and he wanted to disorient people if they ever got away with him. That's just crazy. It almost reminds me of the Winchester Mansion in a way. Yes. Yeah. Many people do mention that. And, you know, it's very similar to his. And, you know, I I forget the dates when it was built, but who know who inspired who in that regard, you know? Yeah, well, man, that's true. Well, the, and there was that um, American Ripper series that came out and I well, you were interviewed on that, weren't you? Yes. And that's, you know, I, it's interesting because I always have uh, like a little, not a bone of contention, but, you know, when, when they contact me, you know, and you know what it's about, it's mm-hmm. American Ripper and uh, the great, great grandson of H.H. Holmes. Holmes yeah. Yes, he has a theory that H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. And, um, you know, I mean, everybody's got, you know, to, to sell airtime. So, <laughs> but yeah. they wanted to interview me and I said, okay, look, I'll be on it, but I'm not going to talk about Holmes being Jack the Ripper. I'll talk because he wasn't, I told him that exactly. And I said, I'll talk about his building and him himself, his mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I remember, I don't think that it's, it's happened yet. Cause I figured I would have heard about it, but didn't they, like, what isn't the basement of where the, Holmes's uh hotel well does it still exist possibly because I remember some I think it may have been that series that said they were going to try to go and try to dig and see if they could find it 
Yeah, I think they were going to try and do some sort of follow-up to that show, which I haven't heard anything about. I haven't either, but, yeah. So the 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 whole property where the uh, Holmes's castle sat on, there's a post office on it. But the post office is a little further west than where Holmes's actual building was. So, you know, the basement of that post office only goes so far. So, yeah. you know, how much of that was under Holmes's castle? There's probably the most of it they can't get to, you know. And again, you know, it, it's interesting. That's I think people more into the paranormal are interested in that. I did go in the post yeah. office and they said they did hear. <laughs> you know, me, yeah. me I, I I love paranormal movies. Like I love to changeling and the exorcist. Yeah. But for me, I, I seek the truth. You know, that's what it's about mm. for me. Yeah. Well, that's what I think. Like for me, what I like about documentary filmmaking, because, you know, I haven't made anything like you yet, but I've made some short uh, projects and um, I've asked, you know, I have a the flying Greek right now that I've done. And yeah. for me, documentary filmmaking, I kind of tell people it's kind of uh, I went up before I became. A filmmaker i wanted to be an archaeologist i was into preservation and history mm -hmm. but i also love storytelling and i kind of fell in love with film and storytelling and i started off in live theater but to me documentary for me is kind of a beautiful melding of my love for creative storytelling with film but also preserving people's stories in a unique well, creative way and that's what I, that's what i like about it too because i want to seek the truth and it's also not about what i know but what I want to know or what I'm going to find out. Yes, yes. And you're right. It is like an archaeological dig when you're looking for this stuff. And the further back you go, it's either harder or impossible to find things. You know, there are floods in basements, fires. You know, people steal these mugshots and files and sell them on eBay or collectors get a hold of them. So it's getting harder to harder, you know, harder and harder to find these research items the further you go yeah. back. I got lucky with some of my films, but even researching Gacy you know and that was in you know 78 was when the you know when he was uh, uh apprehended but even now you know it's still they're still holding on to these a lot of items uh, a lot of the items or you know the uh big time stock photo companies get a hold of a handful and they charge you like 500 dollars for one oh, photo yeah you know? yeah well and that's the thing too because there's also the um the holmes peitzel case book which i have a digital mm -hmm. copy of but if I recall, didn't H.H. H. Holmes also write um, what happened to him in his own words, but it's kind of definitely uh, embellished? Yeah, he did. He called Holmes his own story, and that was written pre-trial. So, you know, of course, he's, you know, he's so elaborate. I, the chill, I would never harm those children. I was like a father to, the, you know, it's like such bullshit, but, you know, it's. <laughs> That's that's him. That's a serial killer. You know, that's yeah. what they do. But, you know, I mean, I think there's some glimmers in it. You know, you hear about, you know, the bullies dragging him into the doctor's office mm -hmm. and he was scared of the skeleton. I think that happened. And that did create an interest in, you know, the human anatomy and skeletons. You know, you, mm -hmm. you know, flash forward and you see what he was doing. Um, but you're right. A lot of it was. And, you know, he he says one point in the book, well, my father didn't spare the rod. Well, OK, what does that mean? He beat you. He. Well, yeah. The, no. Uh, yeah, that's it's like, what of, is it, you know, that's, that's open ended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, 
but the, then the Holmes Peitzel case, I think that was actually the case file that one of the cops, I believe. Yes. Detective Frank Geyer, who was sent to find the missing children that were with Holmes, the Peitzel children, he went on the search for the children and he wrote a book all about his journeys, which is very fascinating. I yeah. released a book called The Strange Case of Dr. H.H. H. Holmes. And in my book is all three of those books complete. So you have the Holmes Peitzel case, you have Holmes's own story, another book called the Holmes Castle, all from 1895, 1896, and Holmes's Confession. So it's a great resource, a book. That's awesome. Um, so with, and you've kind of answered this too about the serial killer thing, because I mean, let's be honest, what is it about true crime that draws people in? Because I know one of my favorite pastimes, my wife and I, for years, ever since we've been married, was to, we would just find an interesting true crime documentary on Netflix or Hulu, and we would just end up watching it because we're just, my wife's a school counselor, so she studies psychology, and so she's very intrigued by the psychology of a lot of these things. I mean, is there an inherent thing uh, that true crime does to us that makes us want to watch that and why it's so popular? Yeah, I think it's really the fact that, you know, we don't see these people every day. You know, we don't we don't turn around and see our neighbors, our husbands, our brothers, our sisters, you know, killing people left and right. We don't see that. So we're fascinated by the fact, especially the serial killer, not only they kill, but they hunt their predators and they do it over and over again. So we're we're trying to figure out, wow, that's amazing that, you know, fascinating that they're compelled to do these things over and over again, like an addiction. So there's that. But, you know, I found there's many different levels. You know, you, you may have, you know, many housewives or other people who just sit at home and read a book or watch the documentary shows. Then you have collectors. Then yeah. you even have people in the law enforcement industry. I know a former police officer who owns three Gacy paintings, has them in his living room, and his wife doesn't mind. Huh. It's fascinating. And it is. It's, uh, and, you know, which brings me to my next question. The next film you did was on um, Albert Fish. Is that correct? I believe. Yes. That. Yes. Mm -hmm. So how did you find out about Albert Fish? Because I remember watching that and I was just like, my God, he is digging up some stuff I've never heard about. This guy is messed <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was trying to find somebody to, you know, who could top H.H. Holmes. Well, well and that Albert was pretty Fish, good. <laughs> right. He tops him in the gruesomeness. I think he's like, you know, the most decrepit. To me, he's the scariest serial killer because he preyed on children. Mm -hmm. And he would say that he didn't, you know, he I he said he never raped the children. And I don't believe he did. He just wanted to hear them, their, their cries and screams. That's what he got off on. So he would torture them just to hear them muffled cries and screams. And it, he was just this, you know, nasty, you know, kind of old man, which is interesting because he started later in life in his 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. which usually serial killers start in their 20s but yeah albert fish was just this grandfatherly looking old man in new york yeah. city in the 20s and 30s you know well and the way you shot a lot of the scenes i remember there was a house that you shot that it was a decrepit old looking house i don't know where you found it mm -hmm. and the way you shot it i mean it was just pure horror like yeah. you didn't have to show me him I was just like, this house is making me freak out the way you were filming it. And it was just because, like, um, it, it was just the setup. And I can't remember which part of the yes. film it was. I think, I think that was the part when he talks about his wife leaving him. Yes. So when his wife left him, she took everything. She took the children and she took everything, all furniture. He, I think he said she left him like a dime or a penny in the bathtub. Like she took everything. Yeah. So because, you know, she found out, obviously, some of these things that he was doing. He wasn't killing at that point. But, you know, he was placing ads and he wanted to do S&M with, you know, other women and 
Um, so what I did, it's interesting. I haven't, I don't think I've ever told this story. So you're, it's a first year. Oh, all right. So I lived in LA at the time period. I I'm from Chicago, but I lived in LA for four years and I'm back in Chicago now. So when I lived there, I was filming the, all these reenactments for Albert fish. And I knew I needed a vacant kind of like house or apartment. So, you know, a lot of times realtors leave these apartments open. Mm-hmm. So there was literally apartment I think it was two doors away from me and they had a sign outside for rent. So one day I went, the door was open. I I'm like, okay. So I called the actor. I said, Hey, come on over now. We'll get you in a costume. We filmed it in 15 minutes. I, it's like real guerrilla filmmaking. That's awesome. <laughs> no permission. Don't get permission. people. <laughs> Is that the ones where he, where he was, you had, was that the, the actor that was playing? Albert Fish. Yes. Yes. Uh, his name was, uh, yeah, he's Otto Brazina. And he was at that time, he was like in his seventies and he was climbing up hills and doing all this stuff for me. He got naked. I asked, I'm like, could you get naked for this one scene? He's like, yeah, no problem. Just give me a robe. <laughs> I'm like, that's what I want. That's the actor that you want, you know? Yeah. Like, okay. You know? And yeah. He was amazing. Well, yeah. And, and that, I think I recall the scene too. in in that room you're talking about, I mean, there was a couple of shots you had where he was just like in front of a window. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. Very, goes- very, very, uh, you know, like you're saying very ghostly, like it was silo- his silhouette standing yeah. there with his hat on. But, yeah. but by God, it worked. I mean, that, yeah. I, I can't get that image out of my head yep. because of how yep. it was done. So I bravo. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and um, now there is one I have not seen yet and I, it is on my list. And so I'm going to ask you to forgive me on that. But I want to see it because it has one of my favorite voice actors in it. Yes, John DiMaggio. Yes, because I love Bender. Yes, Bender's my. I love it. I have a little figurine at home, and it it still works. And you says all Bender's lines. Oh yeah, (laughs) he is great. You know, and yeah, the film is Carl Panzram, and you definitely have to see it. It's 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 on my list. I will. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, and uh, I knew I had to find this voice because Carl Panzram was this lifetime criminal in the early United States. He would his home was jails and prisons. He was a really tough guy. Uh, you know, supposedly he killed, you know, 20 something people after he said, I went to Africa and shot the Africans and fed them to crocodiles, you know, all this crazy, insane stuff. And he was very <laughs> strong, you know, yeah. but, uh, you know, I knew I needed a voice for him that, you know, depicted who he was as a character. So I, at one time, I remember I was watching Gears of War the, or playing the Gears of War video game. Mm-hmm, I play games mm-hmm. and I heard him on there and I'm like, this oh, is the guy. And of course, yeah, yeah. you know, right. Uh, Phoenix was his name or whatever Mm -hmm. and you know but then you know i looked up a while i was like wow he's a futurama because i didn't know he has done so much john oh oh, yeah you wouldn't know he's so good at it yeah well if you ever i'll have to send you remind me i'll send you a dvd of pan's ram movie because there's outtakes with john dimaggio he did all these voices <laughs> and awesome. it was like oh my god it was hilarious at one point he was you know he would do the narration you know i killed all these people and then he would take a break he's like this guy needs a hug and a sandwich <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun you know it was, it was a blast you know that's awesome fun. yeah it was a good oh, time recording that's great him. man I, I got close to getting his autograph one time but they it was pre-covid and I was at some convention and I went to stand in his line and they were like, well, no, this isn't the line. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is usually you when nobody's in front of the tables, you would just go stand on the line, right? Mm-hmm. Behind the tape. And they're like, oh, no, you start over there. And there was this <laughs> l- like line against the wall. 
Mm-hmm. And then they they would come and get you and bring you over to them three at a time. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, I I was like, oh, God, I've come this far. I might as well try. And I stood there for probably two and a half hours and I didn't move probably three inches in this line. Wow. And I uh, my wife came by and said, I want to I want to meet him, but I just I can't stand here anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, it's tough. You know, yeah. I, and I do a lot of those conventions and, you know, there are lines, you know, especially like one of the recent ones. Um, Robert Englund, you know, of course, Freddie. So, yeah, it was mm-hmm. insane. Oh, yeah. Well, and then I did see this one and I I watched it and it was uh, it, it started out as a film and then became a series that was you have a, um, that I saw on Amazon and that was Serial Killer Culture TV. Yes. So the, the film originally was Serial Killer Culture. Yes. And that did really well because as I was making my films on serial killers, of course, I met so many people from forensic psychologists to uh, detectives and writers, authors, you know, people who are involved, family members of these killers, collectors, people who collect Mm -hmm. this stuff. And I'm like, you know, and after meeting all these people, I thought, well, this is a serial killer culture. And I created that term, serial killer culture. And I'm like, this is because it it encompasses so many things of everyone from law enforcement, whoever is, you know, in doing something with serial killers. But I find it interesting. And that's what I tried to focus on that film, creators. So not only collectors, but people who create art such as Hart Fisher with the Dahmer comic or um, Sparzanza, which is a Swedish band that did a song on Albert Fish and used some of my audio. Uh, you know, again, these artists that Joe Coleman, who do, does paintings on serial killers, you know, why they're fascinated as artists you know, to create these works of art on killers. And then it was so it was so well received that I did a TV show and there's two seasons mm-hmm. and that's serial killer culture TV. Yeah, and I highly recommend that for anybody who hasn't seen that too, because each episode is very focused and very, very unique. Because I remember you taught, you did an episode where you um, about the Gacy paintings that people had. Yes. Um, and so I guess my my next question I have to ask is, um, what is it as after doing all these films so far, especially after the series, what is it that you found that people? How do people I did like get. Because to me, I, I okay, yeah, I like learning these things. I find this serial kill, like true crime documentary, is very fascinating. From not only just you know a per, you know an interest of like the psychology of it, but as a filmmaker as well. But I like for me, I would never be like for me. I'm like I don't want to really own anything that the Manson family had. To me, it just I'm like, eh. What is it that draws some people to? you know, get those, want to collect those things or seek those things out, do you think? You know, I think it's, it's that whole counterculture thing, you know, you're doing something that, you know, is banned on eBay and society says is taboo, you know, anything that's taboo, people are going to be fascinated by, but you're right. It's only a select uh, amount of people that collect these things or, or desire them. Now, some it's only business for them. You know, William Harder, he's in one of my shows and that's his business. He buys, collects and sells and trades all of this, you know, serial killer stuff, whether it's, you know, a, f- uh, a, a fingerprint chart or a, a painting by a killer or a killer's ashes, or, you know, it could be anything, a door handle from, you know, where, uh, 
you know, the Bianca murders were or Manson, you know, all these things, underwear, fingernails, people uh-huh. trade. Yeah, it's strange, it's but people, so strange, yeah. I think it's, you know, people, not only the, them, but the people that buy the, the artifacts, I think they're, you know, they just want to have a piece of this, you know, dark history. Well, yeah, and it's, but I also find it fascinating because some of the people you talk to, they seem completely sane. Mm-hmm. It's just something to interest them. But then you hear the stories about like the woman who wanted to marry Charles Manson while he yes. was, and then she was just going to keep his dead body when he died. And it's just like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, where, I know. Where's the well, line here? <laughs> well, here's the thing, too. You know, I mean, now, of course, there's TikTok and, you know, smartphones yeah. and photos could take very easily but even you know going back you know 10 20 30 years there wasn't so how did someone you know uh, you know be you know be close enough to someone who's infamous well a woman would mar- want to marry them and guess wow. what well now the the you know sensationalism of the press is talking to her and now she's a, a celebrity as well now because she's marrying the serial killer so it's i think there's some of that too that people hold that attention like, like that, they, their 15 minutes of fame exactly yeah that's true um, but you know i mean you're right though i mean when i talk to many of these collectors and what they say is true it's just like collecting baseball cards for some people it's just that they're collecting these things and they are you know again they're all kinds of things it is dark history but they're not killing anybody they're just collecting this stuff and they have families they have normal lives it's more of a hobby for for many of the collectors and you know for them to meet other people and like I said earlier, it's great that my experiences creating these serial killer documentaries have introduced me to so many people and traveled to so many places. And and to me, you know, it's the journey, of course, that is, yeah. you know, the, the great process of making these films. Because oh, yeah. yes, you have a film, but for me personally, it's, you know, I could say I've done all these things. I've been to, you know, Clinton Prison and Danamora where Panzram was and, you know, uh, you know, not just the locations, but these people and experts that I've met. I mean, you know, when I met the two detectives who arrested Gacy and the orthodontist who identified the majority of the dead, you know, boys, but I would tell them, Al, each of them, you are a hero. You know what they'd say? They were so like, you know, down to earth. They would say, ah, oh, we were just doing our jobs, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah, but you, you did these great things, you know, and, and I look at them as heroes because they stopped, you know, him from doing more and they identified, you know, the, these poor boys. Sometimes you see documentaries out there that you're like, man, that's just a crazy story. And you see that a lot in true crime. But you took a break from true crime and did a movie on an artist um, named Vincent Castiglia. Yes. How did that film come to fruition? Well, the film is called Bloodlines, The Art and Life of Vincent Castiglia. And of course... And I'm sure a lot of people notice that I do love art as well, you know, being a filmmaker, um, but just art in general as well, you know, paintings and sculptures. I actually wanted to go into special makeup effects when I was a teenager. So I sculpted and did a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And Vincent and I were friends on social media for a while because we both appreciated each other's works. Um, And Vincent does these paintings either in his own blood 
or collector's blood if somebody wants to hire him mm -hmm. uh like margaret cho did a portrait he did a portrait of margaret cho in her blood he did the um slayer guitarist gary holt he did the guitar in gary holt's blood and that's in the film it shows the whole process of how vincent extracts the blood and usually he has a nurse or a phlebotomist there that does it mm -hmm. um and it's very fascinating to see how he works and the process is amazing so he had posted, uh, I believe on Facebook one time, a question asking his fans saying, people are saying I should do a reality show. What do you think? And I don't know if he was approached by it, but a lot of people were like, yeah, that's awesome. Cool. But I post, I sent him a long message or even responded to that post. And I said, I think Vincent, that would do a disservice to your art because I do know what reality shows are like. They're scripted. Their producers basically yep. tell people what to do. It's yep. not reality. It's fake reality. Yep. And, yep. and I told him that I said, you know, they could make you look like a fool. They want to start arguments with people. And I said, it might be detrimental to your career. I said, what you really need is a doc documentary film encompassing your entire life so people could see what brought you to this point not just you know little sound bites here and there and then he he messaged me privately and he said do you want to do this and I said yeah I said I want to do it but I want a pain my own blood <laughs> <laughs> so that was the deal and that's how that came about you know yeah. and together we both worked on a um kickstarter uh you know and and pulled all our fans together and we, you know, I produced the movie uh, with the Kickstarter funds and it was great. Took us to Switzerland, uh, to HR Giger's home and studio and his oh, wow. museum out there. Yeah, it was phenomenal and met so many people. I think I have Greg Allman's last interview. I'm not sure, but I think we have that wow. in there. Many musicians and Margaret Cho and so many great people. So that's how that came about. That's amazing. You know, uh, sometimes I always find it fascinating that i can be sitting there trying to search for a story or something to just to like spark my creativity and sometimes it's the thing that i'm looking over here to my left and it's like right here going hi i'm right here this is me if this is the story it's interesting and i mm -hmm. don't see it until i it, it hits me in the face sometimes and sometimes I don't want to call it divine intervention or anything, but you know, it just happens to yep. happen. You know, you saw a post and you commented or mm -hmm. methods and it just blossomed into this film and you, and you have, and he did paint the picture of you. Cause I think I saw it on your social media. Yes. Yeah, he did. And, you know, I told him I wanted something, you know, decaying, dead, zombie-ish, you know, so he did like a bust of me, but it's like a uh, classical, you know, like a, uh, you know, a bust in stone or whatever, but it's like chipping. Yeah. One of my eyes is white, like a zombie. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's that. really yeah. cool. So it's cool. like, and so is that in your blood? That's in my blood. So in the documentary, cool. it shows he took 12 vials of my blood. And, uh, you know, beforehand, of course, I, I was on my way to when I was staying in New York, I was on my way to his place. And I'm thinking, you know, I probably should, yeah. you know, drink something or eat something because he's probably going to take a lot of blood. And right there in his refrigerator, he put my blood next to Greg Allman and Margaret Cho's. And I'm like, OK, I'm in good company. You know, so <laughs> That's it's, yeah, it's That's fascinating. Cool, yeah. And he, and, and, does he do tattoos as well? Did I see he does? That? Yeah, that that's yeah. his um main, I believe his main source of income or his day gig. You know, he does tattoos. Now he has a tattoo studio and an art gallery in Florida. At, oh, wow. So he relocated okay. there. But when he was in New York, I stayed with him whenever we filmed. So, you know, I mean, to me, what more of an honor can you have? Just imagine 
Salvador Dali or, you know, to me, it's the same thing because, you know, of course, 100 years from now, that's when Vincent's going to be extremely popular. You know how that goes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but just, you know, being there with him and, and you know, experiencing while work just standing there and and literally watching him work for hours is just amazing and how he worked with the blood you know it's yeah it was fascinating so that i wanted to make that a main part of the documentary as well to show how the process is working with blood because it's not easy oh i don't doubt that because i mean it's not it's not regular pain right <laughs> yeah did he ever do you, do you know did he actually have to like add something to it to kind of make it more paint like or did he just <laughs> He, he, he does different levels. So what he does is it's just blood. He doesn't, if anything, he dilutes it with water, just really? tap water. And so that's, that's how you would get the lighter shades. Yeah. And the darker shades would be pure blood. And so what was it like taking a break from true crime and doing a story like that for you? It was nice. You know, I, I like those breaks and I need them. Believe me, I'm going to need one after this Gacy documentary. <laughs> We're going to get to Gacy in a second. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was very nice because again, uh, you know, being with an art in his process and appreciating that and then meeting all these other people who, you know, I've known who, or who are idols of mine. I mean, being in HR Giger studio, that's another one of my dreams that's come true. Awesome. It's like to see where he worked, where he died. I mean, all and, the, that was right there. I pet his cat, you know? So did you screen the movie there or were you re like, was he doing like a show and you were filming it as part of the documentary? We were filming it because Vincent, at one of his first art gallery showings, was at H.R. Giger's museum because Giger kind of took, you know, a shine to, to Vincent. And, you know, he was like a little prodigy of his. So, you know, obviously we filmed after Giger had passed, yeah. but we did want to incorporate, you know, their relationship together and how that Absolutely. worked. Plus, of course, you know, you've got the allure of Alien and, you know, just all these films yeah. he, Giger had worked on. But it was very interesting to see how Giger would sit. He would, you know, paint an airbrush on these huge panels that were like four or six feet by like eight or ten feet. And he would sit... It just in a little stool, a, a rolling stool that he would sit on, and he had a button that he would push, and he had a hole in the, cut in the floor. So the whole the whole canvas, the piece of wood, would just move itself, and he wouldn't have to move from his chair; just sit there, and he could move that canvas up or down by pressing a button. It was just amazing. That's cool. Wow. So, from Vince, the, the film on Vincent, your next film was on. Uh, John Wayne Gacy and you're still working on that and I know you and I've talked privately about that because I know that a lot of filmmakers including myself you know post I don't want to say post pandemic but post you know COVID if you will when it, the world shut down um, filmmaking has not been very easy for independent filmmakers I mean it's hit everybody differently but and it was one of the reasons that my 45 minute documentary took three years to film because or to finish at least because we were getting ready to edit and then the world shut down, you know, and I know that you've been dealing with a lot of um, ups and downs with it. And I know that, like I said, you and I talked about that, but what is it that's make, what made you want to do a documentary on Gacy? Let's start there. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk about the pandemic stuff too, because obviously yeah, that played a role. Because it's been four years uh, this yeah. summer that I've been working on it, but I mm -hmm. my goal is to wrap it up this year. But 
So after uh, Vincent's documentary, I believe I finished season two of Serial Killer Culture TV. I was working on that. And then, of course, I wanted a new, uh, you know, biography on a serial killer. So I was trying to think and, you know, I'm apprehensive to do more modern killers because people have heard of them or mirrors and and things. But when I would do, I go to a lot of conventions and expos and I, I, of course, listen to feedback from people. And every time they would come to my booth, do you have anything on Dahmer? Do you have anything on Bundy? Do you have anything on Ramirez? Do you have anything on Gacy? So I listened to them. And I, at first I released a, while I'm working on the Gacy documentary, I had many files. So I released a book called hunting a predator and it's all these case files about John Wayne Gacy and how he was apprehended. So, you know, that was good, but I'm thinking, you know, I tried to look at, okay, I, I, had researched so much about Gacy. I thought it was almost meant to be Gacy. And I went to the same high school, Prosser vocational high school. Um, we both lived and grew up on the Northwest side of Chicago. Uh, his father buried at the same cemetery where mine is buried. Mary Hill were both Polish. Um, you know, so there were all these similarities and it's not just that I thought, you know, I could bring this about, you know, in a fascinating way and it's Chicago where I'm from. So it's kind of like my hometown story. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about it, I started it in 2019, just before the pandemic. Yep. But when I had started it, the great thing is almost everybody from that case is still here in Chicago. So I didn't have to pay exorbitant travel fees, hotels. They were here. Yeah. So, you know, I have 21 people. Uh, I've interviewed more than 21, about 24, 25, but at least 21 of them met Gacy, arrested him, prosecuted him, listened, talked to him, worked with him, sold his artwork. So it's going, it's very, you know, uh, you know, uh, great source material. So I figured, you know, uh, let me do that. And I talked to a friend of mine and, you know, we started to go in on it together because we both had the same kind of cameras. So we would do uh, interviews with two camera shoots and, and of course it's here in Chicago. So B-roll, oh, I just go out and do it you know i just yeah. film so yeah well and what was it though about gacy's story because mm. i know it, we've talked a little because there's been so many documentaries right that have been done about him and i know as a filmmaker if i see if i'm going to do a story on somebody it's like well what am i going to do that's going to make it stand out and be different than what other people have um, done before exactly so what was your approach you know, I, I I had researched, you know, Gacy's entire life and I thought almost like H.H. Holmes, again, his Gacy's entire life is fascinating. Everything that happened to him, not just the case and the arrest and murders, you know, everything is fascinating. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do a film like I've done with the others, but there was just so much it's turned into a miniseries. So now I don't know if it's going to be four or six part. I'm still working on that. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, again, just the things he did, you know, his childhood, how he grew up, you know, and obviously he was abused by his father. We know that. And there were other things that happened to him as a child. And then coming, you know, going to Waterloo where in Waterloo, uh, Iowa, that's where his career of crime began. And not many people know that. When I tell them these stories, they they say, I never knew that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. in Waterloo, he had, you know, he would chain up a, a teenage kid to his bed while he had sex with his wife at that time. I mean, there were weird things going on, you know, and one of these kids that he had abused had wound up, you know, ratting on him. And that's how he went to prison. And he was supposed to go for 10 years. But because he was such a nice guy and helpful, he only served like 12 months or like, I think it was eight months or 13 months. Um, But again, when you see his time in Waterloo, you see 
you know, a predator in the making, mainly a con man at first because yeah. he was a predator. You know, that's how he got into uh, Waterloo. Uh, I mean, in Anamosa Penitentiary. But you really see the con man aspect. He he <laughs> arranged to bring a closing miniature golf course from another part of the state all the way to the prison so that the inmates had something to do in the yard. Well, he did it and he successfully did it. And to this day, I went to Anamosa prison. That golf course is still in their yard. Really? That's oh yeah. Oh, Gacy did great. Things. Oh yeah. Oh, well, you know, that's the thing they thought this guy is great. He would help the, with the Christmas toy drive. He was on the choir, the, the Christmas and, you know, religious choir. He would sing. He was their chef. Everyone loved him. Everyone loved him in prison, which, which, which is kind of like the perfect, you know, predator, right? That's what yeah. they do. It's the duality of serial killers. No one would expect them. And believe me, as we go on in the Gacy story, we see like how no one would suspect this guy. Yeah. I mean, there would be times where he would kid around with people and say, oh yeah, I got two bodies in the trunk of my car. And they know what they'd say. Yeah, whatever. Cause he'd always kid about death. He and would stuff joke, like but, but yeah. uh, wow. So it's almost like, do you think it was more of a cathartic release that he yes. was? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing with serial killers, right? It's domination and control. So he knew inside he was laughing inside, knowing that ha, they really don't know what I got under my house, yeah. you know, but, you know, seeing that progression from, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, a rapist of, you know, teenage boys turning out to be this con man and then coming back to Chicago and really getting his footed footing here and getting in with the right people, you know, to where he was, you know, became, you know, part of the politics and bought the house yeah. in Norwood Park. And he ingratiated himself with society. So he was out in the open. And that was what was fascinating to me, how everyone in his neighborhood loved him. Everyone, he would walk into bars, even the detectives, they say, He'd walk in a bar. We'd go behind him. Everyone loved him. Hey, John, they'd pat him on the back, hug him. He'd tell Sad. jokes. Yeah. He would send over beers to the detectives. Everyone loved this Ooh, guy, but that was wow, his cover. Man. Yeah, that was his that's, cover. That's almost like the perfect uh, backhand when you, in retrospect. Yeah. You know, you know? And, the, and the chilliest thing is that when the detectives told me that, you know, there was a time when they were with him and one of the detectives went to the bathroom and then Dave Hackmeister was at the table with uh, Gacy and Gacy said, you know, it's great being a clown. You know, you could put your arm around a woman and crop a feel. He's like, you know, it's great. You know, Dave, clowns could get away with murder. He knew that he did. And he said that knowing that he did. You know, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating everywhere you look at this case. And then, of course, many people know about the, you know, the murders and the and investigation, the trial, but not many people know that pre the time he went into prison, that was chapter one. When he goes into prison, that's chapter two. He was on death row for 14 years. He had a 900 number making money off of that. He sold what? paintings that he made money off of. <laughs> He, yes, he he would write people. He said he wrote 27,000 people. So he had this great communication with people. Everyone wanted to interview him, Oprah, Truman Capote. And then, you know, again, his time in prison was amazing. He even changed prison policy for the better. 
Okay, for the, for so, the, for the better. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and you find this, and and you know, with Carl Panzeram, he was in many prisons, and he had done that too, because Panzeram was hosed down at one of the prison, and the word got out to the governor, and the governor got rid of the warden and brought in someone, you know, who wasn't going to, you know, abuse these prisoners. So Panzeram kind of sometimes these serial killers do something good in a sense. It's very strange, but like for the other prison population. So Gacy uh, wrote the warden. He said, you know. Uh, you know, you're charging death row inmates more for photocopies than the general population. He said, everyone in the wow. prison should pay the same price. And they said, you know, we're right. And they changed prison policy. So everyone paid the same price for photocopies. That's uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> so, I, like, I don't have any words. I'm like, right. this is so yes. crazy. Right. And when you watch the whole Menard prison segment, your head is going to be spinning because it's like, that's the absurdity of this, right? How is this guy who killed all these kids here? Now he's a, he was really the first serial killer celebrity. Some of the other ones, of course, had fame and infamy, but this was the guy who, you know, really created the serial killer celebrity because he he had a business from his little jail cell. Numerous businesses. Well, and, and how did he I mean, because how does somebody like that run a business from the their jail cell? Well, you'll have to see the documentary, but that's, you know, that's he fair. Had, that's fair. <laughs> but no, but he had, he, yeah, but he had people that would help him, obviously. You know, there were people wow, on the yeah. outside, and there were ways where you could get a, around the law. But, you know, there were times, of course, when the warden would crack down and say, you can't do this. And then Gacy would contact the ACLU. And then the warden would say, okay, wow. you know, you could keep doing it because he got permit the ACLU, you know. Uh, first right what for, isn't it the first uh, amendment rights all these yeah. free speech you know so it's very interesting when you watch my documentary people's mouths are going to be open be oh, like, my, my mouth my jaw's on the yes. floor right now yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it, what? it is insane it's insane i mean he threatened the warden because someone supposedly stole his paintings that he was going to ship out i mean this guy was uh, you yeah it's he wrote his own book he published two books with his letters in them yeah <laughs> he did all this well, from a jail cell. Where, where is this money going to go, though? Okay. Well, you have to see the documentary again, too. But... <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. I'm getting too deep. I don't want to blow the... Um, <laughs> and you know right in the True. end gacy no matter how much money gacy had he could only buy stuff from the commissary you yeah. know or if other yeah. people may have bought him or sent him something so all he could do is buy you know uh i think he liked pepsi you know and and chocolate bars and that stuff you know but wow. that was about it so you know his money did go to different places and you know again that's revealed in the documentary yeah, but we, it's we, I, I, fascinating we, we, yeah i definitely don't want to um spoil anything that's yeah so but yeah. Uh, yeah you've already just what you've told me just just blown me away i'm like what yeah <laughs> right and so it was my intention you know and when i was producing my film of course i reached out to many people like i'd say 95 to 98 percent of the interviewees that i reached out to the experts agreed to be on on my show some didn't and they have their own reasons and that's yeah. okay but mm -hmm. um you know it's again it's just uh to me you know, and the case is still open. So there are still, I think, about four unidentified victims that wow. they're still trying to identify. Yeah. And so the, the Cook County Sheriff's Department opened the case again. And Lieutenant uh, uh, Moran, he's on the case. And I've interviewed him. And he even talks that uh, something good could come from a serial killer because they identified other bodies that weren't Gacy victims to let these family know, okay, you know, we found your brother who is dead. 
And that was kind of a good thing because they identified the body that, you know, the family never could find. And very interesting. Again, I wanted this to be interesting and fascinating to people. And I'm not just going for just the emotions and the sad stuff. I mean, people are going to be laughing a lot in this. It's crazy, but that's how absurd it is. You know, I I crack up at some of this stuff. It's dark, but then you're like, what? These things actually happened? And yeah, it's, it's really insane. Well, that's I can't wait to see it because I it it just fascinates it fascinates the hell out of me. I mean, everything you're saying is just like this is just crazy. Yes, and you know, and I know we've talked about it, and we can talk about the pandemic really quick because I know it's affected everybody in very unique ways. And with this film, I know it affected um it, it affected the production as well. Do you mind talking about that? Yeah, you know, we we started in summer of 2019 and we had filmed a lot of people. We really made progress because, like I said, I knew people were here. Walter Jacobson, who was a news reporter and interviewed mm-hmm. Gacy and, uh, you know, Gacy's last attorney, Karen Conti, the prosecutor, the detectives. They're either in the city or the suburbs. Um, so we really rocked and rolled and got a lot of people filmed. But then, of course, COVID hit. And it did shut me down for a little, but I think even that year, I think it was in the fall that I resumed because, you know, things were obviously strange, but we did resume in the fall with masks and and safety. But, you know, again, it was like, okay, I had one or two crew members and the interviewee and we would, you know, it was, it wasn't like it was, you know, really dangerous and, you know, tight Mm -hmm. and close places. So then it started up again and, you know, it was still a little difficult after that, but the good thing is almost the, by the point after the pandemic began, I had interviewed, you know, the majority of people. So there weren't too many left. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, and, and then after that, it was really just me going out and filming B-roll in these locations. Yeah. So, you know, and, and again, I didn't have to worry about COVID for that. So yeah, it was a little bit of a pause on it. But during that pause, I was editing footage I had, you know, researching, yeah. you know, this case is just, yeah, I mean, you would really appreciate what I've done for this. You know, <laughs> because, I already do. Oh, the, <laughs> for what the, you told our, me. Oh, I mean, I, the files and the people I've talked to and, and the things that have come to me by talking to these experts, cause they have a lot of these materials and files and, uh, you know, photocopies of things that are just amazing. So I'm using a lot of primary source documents in the film. So you can see, yeah, this is what they were talking about. These things happened. So, you know, because of course, again, I still don't have a huge budget. So I'm trying to think, well, I can't afford the stock footage or photos, but I have some of these photos and I have a ton of documents. So to back what up what they're talking on screen i'll show a document of course or the location yeah. or uh-huh. things like that you know be yeah. being creative yeah absolutely well it's like you're the you're the almost like the ken burns of true crime you know <laughs> that's the... what i've been told <laughs> that's what i've been told and it is hard you know i think and you might attest to this you know i I've, I've made short films that mm-hmm. are narrative films mm-hmm. but um i think it's harder to make a documentary because when you're doing a, a narrative film you you've got to have the budget and you okay this one month or whatever or two yeah. you've got to make this movie and then yeah. you're done filming and then you start editing but a documentary along the whole four years they're still filming there's still research there's still oh editing, yeah it's you know. I, I I always equated doing a documentary to making a film backwards yes and because you're like I always like yeah I worked on a series called My Ozarks that um, a nonprofit called um, um, it was in Donovan, Missouri, that um, they were doing tourism videos. 
but they wanted they didn't want to make them tourism videos they wanted to do them as documentaries to get to know the people and so mm-hmm. i directed four episodes of this and the thing that i found that worked for me i was like we would interview the people beforehand so i could get the story idea right and then i would kind of break it down to like a three-act structure because these episodes were less than 10 minutes and so i needed to accomplish a lot in a short time and i would kind of ha- and I, I would create it and i would tell them i'm like this is the direction that we're gonna go but this is documentary. If these people say something mm-hmm. and we go off on a tangent and down left field of something that they didn't say before, we're going to follow it and we're going to yep. make it work, you know, but at least we have some type of direction. But that's the beauty of documentary. It's like, like we said, it's like archaeology. It's you dig up a lot of shit. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's, and sometimes, it's very true. And sometimes that shit is, um, well, I don't know if it's the best term, but that shit can be gold. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Because again, you know, uh, me being, you know, an insider, it's like the the Lieutenant Jason Moran, you know, who's on the case now, the Gacy case. And it, it made a lot of sense to me. He said, there's a difference between the sensationalism that the press releases and the truth that the detectives know. There's a yeah, big difference, yeah. you know, and I always go to you know, the truth, obviously. And that's how it is with a lot of this stuff. You know, there is a sensationalism like American Ripper <laughs> or, you know, you have, you know, the truth, you know, which are like mine. And and like you're saying, okay, you you have, let's say you have an entire film or a miniseries. You're right. There's a beginning, middle and end. But each within each of these sections and subsections, yep. there's a beginning, middle and an end. You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah. like, it's crazy. Yeah. You, and you never know, like your first episode could end slightly different than you planned, but that's yes. okay. But that's yeah. okay. But, but as a filmmaker, you kind of have to have some generalized direction with a documentary. Correct. There's different ways of documentary filmmaking and mm-hmm. like there's the fly on the wall. Like you're just, there's no script. You're just going and you're filming and then you're going to go edit it. And then you're yep. going to go back and film more. And that's a valid way of doing it. I can't do that. Like it's very difficult for me with ADHD to do that. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so like, I, I like story and, and it, it, any filmmaker who's done that type of documentary, I applaud you. You have all my respect. I just personally can't do it. Um, uh, from my point of view, like I have to take what I call the journalistic like I take a journalistic approach. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where Me I too. try I try to break the story down so I'm staying on story. But yes. that's, that this is just a direction I'm gonna go. It's just kind right. of a generalized map because right. I know that something else could come up and this this may I may end it differently, but at least I have a general direction of where I'm gonna go. And it sounds like that's what you did. And you know, maybe even the pandemic helped you with all these in-depth studies yeah. that you had to do because there's stuff that you're telling me. I'm like, I've seen some Gacy documentaries. I've never heard this stuff. So you're, this is going to be a really good one. I can't wait for you to, when you finish it. So I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And, and that's the thing, you know, it, it, I'm telling this story chronologically and, you know, I've seen a lot of these Gacy documentaries and others back and forth, back and forth. You're like, okay, wait, are we in 78 or 92 here? Where are we at? So I love, I love your titles, by the way, you've been doing. Yes. I love them. Yes. Yeah. You know, and that, well, and that's the thing I'm going, you know, pretty much year by year through his life. So what I do is I, I, put the title of the year and I move it on the screen. So, but in back of the title, you could see through it and it's like a little hint looks, of what's it, coming it, up. It looks awesome. I love Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you know, great. and you're right. I take that journalistic aspect too, but you have to be prepared. That's my yes. thing. ABP, yep. you'll always be prepared because let's say you're writing questions, you know, to them about this aspect, but Oh no, I forgot about this. And it's like, 
I cover everything. It's usually at least an hour or two hour interview with each person. Because like you said, I just ask a question. I let them go. I'm not going to interrupt them or stop them. If they go yeah. on tangents, better for me because mm -hmm. I could edit all that stuff later. Yeah. Um, so that's the route that I go to as well. And because I'd rather have more than that's why when those DSLR cameras came out, I could never use those because they had a maximum capacity of like yeah. 10 minutes. And I'm like, shit, no, I need this to roll for an hour with no edits. I just let it roll, Yeah, you know, and I just put the camera there. And a lot of these interviews I do myself too. I put the camera next to me. I have a little monitor. I rig up the wireless mic and the XLR mic and I'm ready to go. You know, I light it yeah. myself and, you know, sometimes obviously I will have helpers, but you know, it's a lot of run and gun guerrilla filmmaking, but you're right. That's what I do. It's that journalistic aspect and definitely research everything about them in the case. So, you know, where they fit in. Yeah. Because they could fit in at an earlier part, you know, but also with mine, what I'm trying to do is, mm -hmm. which eat with each section of my film, I'm trying to keep those people involved with that sequence or time period just in that part. So, yeah. you know, you don't meet the detectives until they get involved when, you know, Gacy's, you know, when the last victim disappears, you don't yeah. see them earlier in the movie, you know, and you don't see the people from early in the movie later, you You're know, all, unless, like, uh, it, unless it's a wrap up. It's like you're almost doing like what they did in the first season of True Detective, but you're doing it documentary style, uh, but from the serial killer's point of view. Exactly. Yes, it's all about Gacy. But here's the thing, and that's what I think also makes mine unique. It's not just all about Gacy, but it's all about these people and how they knew Gacy and how they lived and how yeah. they, you know, how they became to be a reporter in Chicago. So it's a little bit about them. They're not just sitting there and say, oh, yeah, he did this and he did that. They start by saying, well, here's how we got involved. You know, like Karen Conti, his last attorney, they got involved because the city uh, I'm sorry, the state was suing Gacy because they wanted to, him to pay room and board because they're like, wait, you're selling all these paintings. So that's when Karen Conti came on board with her partner to help him with that. But then it turned into them working on the death penalty for him because right at that time, that's when, you know, they set the death penalty date. Very fascinating stuff. That's, and, that's and, fascinating. Yeah. and, you know, the, another one of my goals is for, for this to be obviously, you know, it's always educated. Right. But yeah. this one, I especially want to be educational for people in numerous fields, whether it's forensic psychology, detective work, if you're going into legal matters, the trial, prison time, you learn all about these different aspects and what the and, you know, I mean, Gacy, they they went to Rockford to get the jury for Gacy because they've learned from previous serial killer cases that if you didn't do that, you could, you know, you could have a retrial. And with Gacy, everything went 100 percent perfectly. And that's the thing I want to also illustrate is that, OK, now we're here. We're talking about the court case and the legalities of it and, you know, how, you know, the the death penalty in Illinois began again at a certain time. So during the case, they only tried him for so many of the victims because that was they were murdered after the time when the death penalty was reinstated it's all this is fascinating to me well it is fascinating and when do you think you'll since it's going to be more serial like a like a series mini series do you yeah. think it'll be released on amazon or do you have any plans ideas yet for that I, i'm still talking to distributors but definitely it'll be on amazon uh, apple tv like my films all now are streaming amazon apple tv roku tube uh, Tubi, well. Tubi yep. is great. Tubi is awesome. Uh, I tell people go to Tubi because you could see it for free and it really helps me out financially. So definitely watch it on Tubi. Um, so yeah, you know, that's where it'll most likely be. And, and like I said, I'm thinking 
four to six part mini series. And right now, I think my timeline is anywhere from five to seven hours. So, you know, I'm still, I'm doing this rough cut. So it's almost at that phase where it's like, okay, now I'm going to watch it all and say, okay, here are the final things I need yeah. to film, you know, the finality. Yeah, absolutely. Clean it up, so. Well, John, I am a fan. I, all the respect to you and what you do. I admire you and your work and what you do. And you're just a really awesome and creative filmmaker thank you. And i just thank you for taking the time to share about your films and your work and i could talk to you for hours about this yeah we'll do it again we'll do <laughs> yeah. it again we could do shows just based on one of these movies because that's you know, true the whole, we could the history of how i made it and you know all those things so i'd be up for that too and that's uh, great send me your address and i'll get you a panzram dvd so oh thank you, you. that'd be awesome man well thank yeah. you guys and you've been listening to voided transmissions <laughs>